0: I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moon waiting to be I'm
1: building rockets. I'm them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 655. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. If the acute listeners out there can hear in the background, I don't know if you can hear that. I can hear it. Like a little kids, That is me me log burning fire going. It's freezing here. I've been I've been up in the in the living room since about, I don't know, half past six this morning. It's half nine on the Tuesday morning and oh, I've got it cooking in here, because it's bloody freezing outside. Man, I'll tell you what's coming today, sure. We have just one story today The Pur Frock Whisperer by Brian Rapoose. That is all coming today, today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we'll jump straight in to The, bur- the pur Frock Whisperer by Brian Raputa. Brian once swore he would never set a story in his hometown. Famous last words. He re- originally hails from... Goshen, Indiana, where Purfock Whisperer takes place, but currently resides in South Korea. His previous fiction in genres of science fiction, fantasy and horror have appeared in Analog, Baffling Magazine, Amazing Stories and Writers of the Future, as well as multiple anthologies and podcasts such as Curiosities and Tales to Terrify. Now this story is narrated by Will Staggle. Will lives in Tuscan, Arizona with his wife, Susan and daughter Violet, he is a creative professional by day, the lead singer and guitarist for a post-punk band called Liquid Centres by Night, and is always up for a pint at the corner pub. So, the Starship silver is Very Proud Present...
2: by Brian Rapata, read to you by Will Stagel. So an Amish woman in a prayer bonnet walks into a bar. No, that's not a joke. It's how it all started, the night I helped make the multiverse a better place. Pay attention. I'm aware that Amish women don't generally go walking into bars, but Elizabeth Stolfus wasn't exactly a typical Amish woman either. For one thing, she belonged to one of the more permissive sects living in Millersburg, Indiana, just outside of Goshen. Her family would regularly take their horse and buggy on the five-mile trek down the road to the Walmart in Goshen. Did you know the Walmart in Goshen, Indiana, has hitching posts? Her father, Reuben, had a thing for Mountain Dew. He even had a debit card and a checking account at the Farmer State Bank. Elizabeth grew up watching her three brothers, Reuben Jr., Levi, and Joshua, going off and getting ramsprung. That's when Amish boys become men, by actually getting time off from being Amish. They get to live like us English for a little while. Then they go back to the community ready to settle down and raise a family and be Amish again. Well, most of the time, anyway. Elizabeth's family was still waiting on Joshua to come along from his rumsprunga. Oh, they had all the faith in the world that he would. He was just enjoying his time of permissiveness. He discovered marijuana, you see, and he liked it a little too much to come running back. Elizabeth had passed the age when, if she'd been a boy... She'd have gone off rumspringing on her own. But, well, she had the misfortune of being born a girl. What? Oh, no, no, thank you, I don't drink. I'll just have a Coke. Where was I? Oh, yes. You see, Elizabeth was curious. She'd always enjoyed science class, at least up to the eighth grade, when she'd left school. And English class, too. Had a whole collection of notebooks and journals she'd filled with her scribblings ever since she was eleven. Before going to bed every night, she'd write down with a big ballpoint whatever came to her mind. By candlelight, of course. Unless it was a really cold night and Reuben Sr. turned on the generator in the farmhouse. Apparently that's not cheating if it's really cold. Elizabeth wrote all kinds of things in her journals. Anything that came into her head. As she grew towards adulthood, more and more of what came into her head was poetry. I know, poor thing, right? Well, between you and me, at least her upbringing spared her from the angsty, quasi-goth, pretentious bullshit. No, Elizabeth's poetry was always pretty straightforward, full of an appreciation of nature, an appropriate sprinkling of religious fervor, which was enough for Ruben Sr. and his wife Rebecca to basically just shrug away Elizabeth's habit. They figured it would pass when she found a husband, and she was of prime marrying age. But sometimes what Elizabeth wrote was just weird. She never shared this with anyone, least of all her family. It was kind of like a fugue state would come over her, and her pen would sometimes leave divot marks on the paper as she channeled words through the conduit of the ballpoint pen. She was always a little taken aback when the fervor wore off, and she blinked back to herself and looked over what she'd written. You see, she didn't even really understand much of what was on the page. Or rather, she understood the words well enough. They were usually in English, though sometimes with a smattering of Pennsylvania Dutch thrown in for good measure but the meaning was well beyond her. I think those words frightened her a little, but they were also exhilarating. Elizabeth was a good girl. She believed all inspiration came from above, and that it should be shared, which is how I met her at Constant Springs' open-mic poetry night. Oh, here we are. I really shouldn't drink Coke this late at night. The caffeine will keep me up until some godforsaken hour. But hey, you only live once, right? I'd go easy on that bittersweet symphony, though, if I were you. I used to get those all the time. That's a Manhattan with a hell of a kick. But then, you already knew that, didn't you? Constant Spring's a lot like this place. I mean, a total hipster bar. Except, well, the hipsters in Goshen, Indiana are more like hipster wannabes. Most Hoosier hipsters are totally missing the sense of irony that would make them world-class hipsters. At Constant Spring, the pub food is all certified organic, locally grown. Hell, Half the Amish farms in the area probably end up supplying constant spring through all the local co-ops and such. Live music every Saturday night. Mostly shitty local bands, they'll play for tips. Well lit for a bar. Good place to hang out with some friends, get a little sloshed. I mean, there's only a handful of places in Goshen with a liquor license. It's either that or the Dude Drop Inn further up Main Street, which might as well advertise a neon alcoholics wanted. That and the Tap House, which is over off the state highway. A bit out of reach without a driver's license. At least Constant Spring is a terrible place to get fall-down stinking wasted. That's why I ended up there on a Tuesday night after work at my new job over the industrial park. I'd just gotten off the phone with Lindsay and the kids, and, well, you can imagine, that always puts me on edge. Second Tuesday of every month was Open Mic Poetry Night, which I considered a mixed blessing, On the upside, it'd be perfect for going in, getting a table for one in the corner, having my one cocktail, and getting out fast. Hell, the mangled rhymes would probably chase me out after half an hour, right? The downside, though, having to listen to crap about ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends or breaking up or staying together or screwing or whatever other barely post-adolescent hipster crap. That stuff could drive you to drink. I'd gotten there early, maybe about 30 minutes before open mic night was supposed to start. Constant Spring was kind of a long rectangular place, at least at the front entrance. There were a few token tables near the entrance, and they were already filled by mostly a young 20 something crowd. I was too old for this place, by probably a good 20 years. I thought I must look like some kind of creeper. I was self conscious enough just walking in the door. Fortunately, most people in a place like Constant Spring don't tend to notice others. To get to the bulk of their seating in the back, You had to walk this narrow aisle between a bank of couples' tables on the right and the bar on the left, with all the drink specials listed in colored chalk on the long blackboard hanging above the bar. It was a total fire hazard, I thought, and I got more and more uncomfortable the further the hostess took me from the main entrance. You don't get to be the oldest guy in the bar without being the master of the quick exit. Fortunately, I got perhaps the most unobtrusive table in the whole place. It was a tiny couples' table, the perfect for a pity party of one, tucked in the back corner just off the rather laughable raised dais that served as a stage. The view of the stage was actually terrible, because the seats on either side were parallel to it, but the one I got, smack in the backmost corner of the whole place, was the perfect spot to watch the crowd. I ordered a bittersweet symphony, a drink I hated. Why order a drink I hate? I think you know the answer to that. Walking into a bar alone on a Tuesday night is never really about the alcohol, especially when you've got your one-month chip in your jacket pocket. It's all about staring the devil in the face and seeing who flinches first. Nice jacket, by the way. I have one just like it. Not really much of a Notre Dame fan either, but it helps to blend in with the locals. My drink came. I moved it to the edge of the table farthest from me and managed to ignore it. Instead, I people-watched. So far, it was a meager crowd for Poetry Slam. What else do you expect from a Tuesday night? Two tables over from me, two guys sat sharing a slice of cheesecake... Jin Woo was a Korean exchange student at the local college. He was supposed to study abroad somewhere in California, but a clerical error with his home university had landed him here at Goshen College. He was pretty pissed off about it at first, but after he met Daniel Lovato, who was the guy behind the other fork, he calmed down. Jin Woo wasn't entirely sure if they were on a date or not, but he did find sharing a slice of cheesecake awfully romantic, and he knew he could never tell his Asian tiger mom about it. Of course, I didn't know their names at the time, but I've had plenty of time since then to put the whole thing together. I even went to their funerals four days later. There were about a dozen other people, mostly friends of the poets who were going to the perform, there for moral support, scattered around the arrangement of tables. I know their names, of course, but they're not really important. They survived. That's all that matters. I was far more interested in who the hostess seated next. He was the only guy roughly my age, and he took one of the tiny couple's tables towards the back directly facing the stage. I needed a distraction from my Manhattan, so I tried to figure out his story. It's the thing I do. You're probably guilty of it, too, from time to time. Hell, we all are. He was well-kept, with a neatly trimmed beard. His hairline was thinning a bit, though not nearly as bad as mine. What sold me on the story I constructed in my head for him was his blazer jacket. It was tweed and it had patches on the elbows, the kind that are actually part of the design, like a walking anachronism from the 60s. Had to be a professor at the local college, probably taught poetry, there to cheer on a bunch of his undergrads. I'd gotten it partly right at least, but mostly I was light years wrong. You never really know about people you share a bar with. Walter H. Tibbetts was indeed a literary man. Bachelor and Master's in English Literature at Columbia and ABD at Princeton. He was working on his dissertation on T.S. Eliot when his life threw him a curveball. You see, he was studying the prosodic elements of text in Prufrock and the Wasteland when he made a rather startling discovery. I still don't really understand all the technical aspects, but apparently there are certain algorithmic properties that underlie Eliot's theme and intonation that are constant across all his work. Similar properties are present in Carroll roughly a generation earlier, and e. e. Cummings, roughly a generation later. Call it a secret code for lay people like you and, well, me. Walter understood poetry and prosody well enough, but he had to bounce around academia for a better part of a year and a half looking for a mathematician who could decode the proofrock Code. He finally found his men, none other than Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer. Now, I don't mean he actually met them, Turns out, you see, that the algorithmic properties of Lewis Carroll's work correlate rather closely to the math that underpins the theory of relativity, and Eliot's The Wasteland rather conveniently underlies the physics behind the atomic bomb. Now, I'm not saying that a couple of poets beat some of the greatest scientists of the last century to some of the most significant scientific discoveries of the modern age. That would be a rather misapplication of Tibbetts' research. What Walt came to realize was that, quote, genius transcends itself, end quote, as he puts it. But it takes two. Carol and Elliot encoded the blueprints for the great, great discoveries in their work, but most likely the men themselves were unaware of what they were doing. They were just channeling their divine inspiration onto a piece of paper, after all. Walt calls it seeding. Someone, somewhere, seeded their consciousness with the blueprints for the advancement of humanity. Takes two to tango, though. Somewhere there needs to be a decoder to complete the process. And try as he might... Tibbetts couldn't find any clue as to how the decoding process worked. It was reasonable to assume that Einstein at some point had been exposed to Carroll's work, just as Oppenheimer had to Eliot's. And how's that for irony? A Jew and an anti-Semite? But there the trails broke down. Even though the properties of prosody were present in E. E. Cummings' work, Tibbetts couldn't find any corresponding scientific discovery that matched. It was like the great leap forward in human invention of a generation died unfulfilled because the message failed to reach the right consciousness at the right time. You can hardly fault the messengers, though. Whoever or whatever had been seeding human consciousness for decades with the means to reach further beyond our limits, and there are so, so many theories ranging from the extraterrestrial to the divine, originally chose poetry as a medium. And why not? It was once held in high esteem as the most evolved form of human communication. The messengers could hardly have known about the decline of the art form, the sudden drop in the number of highly skilled practitioners. You know what I'm talking about, the co-opting of the form by an entire generation of dilettantes who wanted to wax prosaic about their acne or whatever. Fair enough. Climbing off my soapbox now. Eventually, though, Walter Tibbetts' research reached the right ears, or the wrong ones, depending on your point of view. Some general with the ear of a U.S. senator got wind of Walter's research, or perhaps it was the other way around. The details are classified, as you can imagine. At any rate, the end result was that they deputized Mr. Tibbetts with a higher salary than he could ever hope to make in academia, and deployed him all over the country to seek out the next great proofrock Whisperer. He'd spent the better part of the last seven years of his life bouncing all around the world chasing ghosts in fragments of verse. Even though Walt was only one man, he had access to a team of scientists. They'd gone all high-tech over the years. They developed spiders, algorithms that could comb through all the noise on the internet, searching for fragments of data that would match the patterns produced by previous dynamic duos. Bit of a snipe hunt, as you can imagine, but it was the best they could do. After all, how do you actually predict the next great revelation when you're just hunting for shards of the last one? Still, Walter's salary and expenses were minimal, at least by government standards, and easy enough to bury as a line item in a budget somewhere, so there was no harm in letting him keep trying except that ours wasn't the only government on the trail. Walter estimated that no fewer than seven governments of world nations employed counterparts to him. He'd actually met most of them. They spent the majority of their time in their past crisscrossing across the globe, hopping from hipster bar to hipster bar. They had their very own gentleman's club. Half the time, they even bought each other drinks and winced together at all the shitty poetry they had to endure. So Walter wasn't all that surprised when his colleague and sometimes drink partner, Ahmed Fazarian, "'showed up in the constant spring "'and took a seat a few tables away from him "'in the other corner near the aisle. "'Walt even raised his glass of bourbon to him "'by way of greeting. "'After this last and a long, long string of open mic nights, "'he thought it might even be agreeable "'to catch up and see how Ahmed's wife and children were doing. "'Last he'd heard, Ahmed and his wife Judy were expecting again. "'I wasn't paying these guys much attention, though, "'or any of the handful of other patrons "'who were filling up the tables around the stage.' I was involved in an epic stare-down of my bittersweet symphony. I reckoned I could slam it down, pay and walk out the door a winner before the festivities got underway. The only thing keeping me from it was a chip in my pocket. Even harmless as it was, one drink would set the stopwatch back to zero and start the reckoning all over again. Fortunately, Elizabeth was seated at the table next to me at that moment, and I was distracted. I was still a somewhat new Hoosier, but even I knew a lone Amish woman in a bar was a bit of an oddity. She was dressed in her finest, a light lavender plain dress, and her prayer covering, a rather stark contrast to the cocktail dresses, heels and fuck-me-red lipstick on the thoroughly modern Millie's two tables back, just in front of where Walter was sitting. Elizabeth looked anxious, and with good reason. She'd never actually been in a bar before, and was still trying to figure out if Constant Spring counted as a den of sin or not. She reckoned Reuben Sr. would probably vote for yes. He didn't know she was there, of course. She just hadn't informed him of her plans. She caught a ride into town in one of the Amish haulers. Those are big 15-passenger vans that operate like taxi services to the Amish. She was clutching one of her journals in her hands. She'd marked a specific spot in it with a simple felt bookmark. I briefly considered going and introducing myself, just to relieve her tension, and to be honest, my own as well, but thought better of it. I was kind of a shit at talking to women, and I had no business talking to a young Amish one half my age. I was pretty much invisible where I was. If I went over to her table even just to chat, everyone in the entire place would see me and misread my intentions. The place was starting to feel a little claustrophobic. They'd packed all the tables in tight, and with the place beginning to fill up with bodies, all sitting close enough that you could bump elbows with the person at the table next to you, I'd have to navigate a minefield of chairs and bodies just to get away from the stage, much less out the front door. A difficult enough task when you're sober, next to impossible, once you get a little stumbling. Which meant it was time to go. I scowled one last time in the Manhattan sitting at the edge of my table. It almost got me then. It was the bourbon, you know. I always had a weakness for bourbon. It's almost like I could smell it across the table. I think you know what I mean. But instead, i looked at my waitress, hell, any waitress would do, time to settle up for a drink and bounce. Blast it all, though. They're always right nearby when your willpower is at its lowest and nowhere to be found when it's high. The place had indeed gotten busy. Most of the tables around the stage were occupied now. Only a smattering here and there were empty. I guess there must not be much going on in Goshen, Indiana on a Tuesday night. I got stuck. I suppose I could have settled up at the bar, but it was crowded right then, and I didn't much fancy waiting on a bunch of young hipsters to place their drink orders. I was going to have to endure open mic night, whether I wanted to or not. A few minutes later, a rather butch girl with a buzz cut and thick black glasses wearing a cardigan took the stage and announced herself as Tina, the master of ceremonies for the evening, to a round of polite applause from the audience and one pocket of over enthused support from one of the tables in the back. Then she announced the simple rules of the evening. If you want to read, come on up, and called for the first poet. And we had a volunteer. There were those who'd come itching to do just that. The first poet was a young kid with a neatly trimmed beard, exactly the same length as his haircut, so it looked like he had a tidy blonde bow around his face. He launched into some kind of slam piece. I barely remember what it was about. It was fast, few pauses, and of course it was angry. I remember that much. The staff of Constant Spring apparently had this whole thing down to a science. The waitresses canvassed the audience on the changeover, taking drink orders while the MC coaxed the next poet out of the audience. I spied my waitress, but damn it all! She was all the way across the bar taking another couple's order, and the next great poetic genius was making her way through the minefield of feet and tables like a Plinko chip. While I waited, I scanned the audience. Elizabeth was wringing her hands, which were sweaty from nerves, and she was entertaining serious notions of chickening out and not going forward, and just sitting and listening. Daniel and Jim Woo's cheesecake was whittled down mostly to just the graham cracker crust. And at the other two corners at the back of the seating area, Ahmed and Walter were calmly sipping their drinks. So far, they'd had no indication that tonight was a night unlike so many others in so many other cities. They both had on their table unobtrusive little devices that weren't quite cell phones. These little gadgets apparently monitored spoken words, analyzing for any packets of recognizable proofrock code. Several more speakers went up in rapid succession, angry, wistful, angry, angry, and whoa, dude. Each of them took their turns at the mic, Belted out their verses with just a bit too much gusto, took their bows, and took their seats again. All the while, my waitress utterly failed to look in my direction, probably having assumed that I had come for the show and couldn't possibly want to settle up this early. Besides, I didn't want to look too rude by standing up and walking out in the middle of a poet. So I endured several more speakers. We are all connected. I'm so alone. Angry. Two in a row. My life sucks, I'm so angry. "'A eulogy for a friend who'd committed suicide. "'And damn, after that last one, I needed a drink. "'My bittersweet symphony was there at the ready. "'I reached over the table and moved it a few inches closer towards me. And "'Then I chastised myself and moved it back to where it was. "'Then I brought it closer again. "'The evening was wearing on. "'All the assembled patrons were displaying enormous fortitude, "'slogging through the piles and piles of pretension, I thought.' Though I suppose a bit of a buzz would go a long way towards mitigating the leaden sound of not-quite-right attempts at iambic pentameter or rhymes forced practically at gunpoint. But then, Elizabeth finally screwed up her courage. She maintains it had come from above, but she was certainly plucky as she made her way up towards the stage. The audience waited expectantly. There was a mild murmur. Amish women were a common of sight in all-around Goshen, Indiana, but not at these kinds of festivities. Elizabeth's voice broke as she introduced herself, and she had to get used to the blaring of the mic. But then, swallowing the lump in her throat, she opened her journal to a place she'd marked. When she read, her voice was steady and engaging. She read her words without so much as a stumble or a stutter. She knew them so well, she didn't even really need to have the journal present. Everyone listened raptly, myself included. For the first time that night, I was in an utter loss as to how to describe The singular tone of her words. I've managed since, though. I know it now. It was calm, just calm. Like her voice was a wave of tranquility washing over the entire audience. The words themselves ceased to be important, and what was left was just the undercurrent. Take it easy. Relax. Everything will be okay. This reaction was not quite universal, though. For starters, Elizabeth's oeuvre registered a ping on Walter's odometer. And another. And another. The fragments of known proofrock code were coming fast and furious, intermixed with strings of purely new, purely unexplainable depths to fathom. Walter had never seen pings on this scale before, and as Elizabeth continued, her voice beginning to rise in volume, his eyes widened. After all those years of searching, this was it this was the one. In the other back corner, Ahmed was Walter's mirror image. He watched incredulously as the ping counter on his little contraption mounted. Then he risked a glance across the bar at Walter, who was in turn taking stock of Ahmed. Their movements were slow, deliberate, unlikely to alarm anyone but to themselves. The intent was clear. Like mirror images, they both reached inside their blazers for the firearms tucked in their shoulder holsters. Their eyes narrowed their lips pursed, and their expressions were like telepathy between them. Fuck camaraderie. Fuck their unwritten gentleman's code. This was business. They both fixated on the journal in Elizabeth's hands. Both knew they had to be the one to leave with it in their possession, whatever the consequences. Walter and Ahmed weren't the only ones to react differently to Elizabeth's words, however. At the table next to me, Jin Wu, driven by some impetus behind Elizabeth's words, was furiously scrawling equations on cocktail napkins. He wasn't really thinking about what he was doing. He'd entered the fugue state that all decoders experience. He was a senior physics student, but even so, the spew of pure mathematics that poured out of his cheap-ass bick with half the ink used up was well beyond his understanding. But that didn't matter. He just knew he had to get it down on paper, or whatever was to hand before it was gone. When Elizabeth brought her reading to a close, she bowed her head. In the moment of silence between her last syllable and the enthusiastic eruption of applause from the audience, I was sitting close enough to see the look of utter panic on her face. For one brief second, she managed to convince herself that everybody had hated it. The audience definitely hadn't hated it. To be sure, not everyone understood much of it, but there was a quality to her rhythm and her rhymes that was undeniably enchanting. It's amazing what the right mind can do with an eighth-grade education. Elizabeth took her seat at the back table next to me. Her fair face was flushed with the applause, and she looked to be near tears, tears of relief mostly, that she'd managed to do what she'd come here to do. And I thought that was about as perfect a coda to the evening as I was likely to get. I decided it was time to make my escape, Fortunately, in the afterglow of calm that Elizabeth's words had brought forth in me, in everyone, I was able to cast one last look at my cocktail and find it not in the slightest bit tempting. How could I possibly know then that the moment I stood up to leave was the moment the multiverse turned on a dime? At that same moment, Ahmed and Walter both stood up as well. Neither of them had ever fired their weapons, not even once in the service of their jobs, but they were reaching for them now and wondering if they had the courage to shoot their colleague across the crowded bar. Things were about to get very, very bloody. In the act of getting up to leave, I banged my knee on the tiny little cocktail table. The resulting clatter, like a gunshot, was resounding enough to halt the conversations of everyone in the bar. It even deflected Walter and Ahmed's attention for just a second. A critical second. My drink toppled off the edge of the table. The liquid inside sloshed out directly towards Elizabeth, who was smack in the line of fire. "'She yelped and jerked to the side "'and instinctively grabbed for her journal "'to keep it out of the spray of liquid. "'My glass hit the floor and shattered into a thousand pieces. "'I stared in horror, first at Elizabeth, "'whose dress was doused with alcohol, "'then at the sea of patrons, "'who were all staring right back at me. "'It was just enough distraction "'to alter the calculus of the moment. "'Aman and Walter both hesitated.' I stumbled to the other side of the table, my shoes crunching on shards of broken glass, stammering incoherencies and apologies to Elizabeth. Daniel, at the table next to Elizabeth, being a gallant gentleman, jumped up from his seat. He immediately grabbed a fistful of cocktail napkins from the ceramic holder on the center of the table. He offered them to Elizabeth, who dabbed at the wet splotch on her lavender dress. All she could think about was that this was her punishment for coming here, for her pride for the sin of secretly liking the attention from sharing her poems. A fast-thinking waitress wended through the maze of tables and steered Elizabeth off to the left toward the bathroom. I watched her disappear in horror, knowing there was nothing I could do to help. I couldn't know then, in that moment, that my colossal klutziness had maybe just saved countless lives from dying in the crossfire. In the grand workings of the multiverse, there are plenty of blood-soaked alternatives that weren't so lucky to all be focused on one spilled drink. All I knew was that my face was flaming red in embarrassment, and I wished I had actually downed that drink now. At least if I was sloshed, I'd stood a good chance of forgetting this moment. And it all happened so fast. Even now, Walter and Ahmed were both recalculating their plans, plotting how best to ambush Elizabeth and get their hands on her journal. And in the shards, Daniel asked me if I was all right and handed me a napkin. My retreat from Constant Spring was far less stealthy than I had hoped for. I settled up for my drink at the bar. I left a $10 tip, apologizing for the mess. The staff were already mopping it up so the open mic night could continue. The attendant at the bar waved it off as no big deal. She was trying to mitigate my embarrassment, I could tell, but it wasn't really working. Even though most conversations had resumed, they were in lower tones, and I could feel the distinct glare of dozens of pairs of eyes on my back. I walked past Walter on my way out the front door of Constant Spring, but I kept my eyes firmly focused on the floor. I couldn't have made eye contact with anyone at that moment, even if I wanted to. When I was finally outside on the street, I heaved a huge sigh. What a night. This had to be my punishment, I thought, for setting foot inside a bar in the first place. I hadn't taken a drink, but when you stare the devil in the face, even when you win, you lose. I turned left and headed down the alley next to Constant Spring. It fed into a parking lot that Constant Spring shared with several of the other businesses along Main Street. Just across the parking lot, I could come out on 3rd Street and head home. From there, I could maybe, just maybe, forget about my humiliation. I caught sight of an Amish woman in a lavender dress just ahead of me. I trotted to catch up to her. Look, I just, I wanted to say I'm sorry, I told Elizabeth. It's all right, she told me. No harm done. Your poems, I indicated the journal she was clutching at her chest. Are they, they didn't get wet, did they? She shook her head. "'They're fine.' "'Ah, that's good,' I said. "'They were really good, you know,' I added. "'She grinned slightly at the compliment. "'I frowned then as another stray thought hit me. "'How'd you get out of there?' I asked. "'Oh,' she shrugged. The nice girl who works there let me go out through the storeroom in the back. "'I see. That's lucky, I guess. "'I wish she'd let me out that way, too.' "'Elizabeth laughed at that, at least. "'I walked her a few blocks to where she was slated to meet her ride "'and waited until she got in the van.' She was unfailingly kind, even to me, the guy who just spilled alcohol in one of the few dresses she owned. Back inside Constant Spring, Walter and Ahmed were still waiting for Elizabeth to come out of the bathroom. They'd eventually give up, and they'd wind up killing each other later that night when they encountered each other on the county road about half mile from Elizabeth's house. The police investigation would never connect them to Elizabeth. And why would it? It was a pretty classic case of two guys with guns taking a bar fight out on the road with them. Never mind that nobody else at Constant Spring that night could remember them actually fighting over anything. The Goshen police weren't that thorough. I was home before I discovered the formula on the napkin that Daniel had given me. I didn't think much of it at first, but over the next several days I kept looking at it and wondering about it. I tried looking up Daniel and Jinwoo. The college was the likeliest place to start, only to find that they both died the night after Constant Spring. Car accident of all things. Fortunately, he and Jinwoo are still alive in plenty of other alternatives. They're married in most. You pretty much know the rest. I could have made a huge fortune patenting Jinwoo's work and selling it. I made sure he got credit for it, though, so he'd go down in history as the man who cracked the greatest scientific discovery of our time. In the alternatives where he's still alive, he's well on his way to becoming a world-class physicist anyway. And it's not like I'm hurting for money in any way. I'm plenty happy in my line of work. Feels like I was meant to do it. Self-actualization tourism across multiple parallels is a booming business. I'm pretty sure you'll like it too, if you get into it. After all, there's an infinite number of versions of 7 billion people who are dying to be introduced to better versions of themselves. And ultimately, if we're really going to make the next leap forward as a species, isn't that who we all need to find? So I've got one question for you. Do you want to come with me and see what your life could be like? Or are you going to give up that chip in your jacket pocket and drink that bittersweet symphony?
1: And there you go. Huge thank you, Brian. Brian, thank you so much. I probably butchered your surname, but what? hey, listen, <laughs> you're not the first, I'll tell you that. And Will, Will, it's lovely to have you back on there, sir. Thank you indeed. I hope everything's, gentlemen, are both fine and well in your world. So that is Starship Sova's Tales to Terrify. Where's that going? <laughs> I'm not sure 655. I hope you enjoyed it. And hopefully, you can kind of support this little show with a little donation to Patreon or PayPal. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you, for
0: Time soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you